Welcome to the study of Daniel and Revelation. This is a new class and it's exciting to get it started. The uh, first couple of lessons, these first two sessions that we're going to have, we're going to look at prophecy more in general. And then at the end of uh, uh, the lesson next week, we'll start on Daniel chapter 1. But for right now, uh, there's just a couple of uh, little housekeeping things. One is uh, contact information. All of the class sessions will be recorded. Uh, so don't say anything that you don't want other people to hear. But uh, we'll record all of the class sessions. And I'll post them on my website at www.eversbibleclass.com. Um, all of the handouts are also available. will be available on that site. You can um, download anything, anytime, go back and review. If you miss a lesson, you can go pick it up. Or um, and We have you know, a couple of people who want to um, follow the lesson just because they live in another state or a, a, another town. They're following it uh, completely online by downloading the lessons and the handouts. Our goal of this study is to study end-time prophecy, specifically Revelation. Our study of Daniel is in preparation to lay the groundwork for our study of Revelation. And throughout the study, we will look at lots of other scriptures. You will be amazed at how this study really ties together the message of scripture. You'll get to uh, know a number of prophets uh, other than Daniel in a lot more detail than you probably have ever known them. You'll, we'll talk about how they lived, what, what their situations were like, whether they were contemporaries of Daniel or not. Uh, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. But the whole purpose of the study is to learn about God, to, to, to worship, to understand his message, to prepare ourselves uh, and towards that end, there's a lot that, that is helpful if you do some self-study on your own in between class days. We meet once a week uh, on Wednesday mornings. And in the middle time, if you prepare in advance or even just review what we went over the previous week, you'll find it really helps. Uh, towards that end, we use a couple of, we're going to use a couple of study guides. The first study guide is the one that we use for um, the study of Daniel. It's Kay Arthur's book, that, where she she gives a, she has a study guide on Daniel. The information on the particular name of the study guide and uh, how how you can find it is available out on the website at www.evers that's e v e r s bibleclass.com. So let's let's get started. One of the first things we need to talk about is how we're going to approach interpreting prophecy. This is these the books of Daniel and Revelation are primarily prophecy. And, you know, you have to understand or at least lay the ground rules for how you're going to go about interpreting them. So I've given you a handout called the Rules of Interpretation that I've adapted from a similar handout that's done by Stephen Armstrong, uh, who is a, a teacher, uh, pastor and teacher in the San Antonio area. And uh, you can, uh, there's a reference to his website on mine. If you, if you go out on our website, you can, you can, uh, there's a link to his. But this rules of interpretation, I've, I've added and changed a little bit to adapt to our class. 
The, the first rule is, is what uh, we call the golden rule of interpretation. That's when the plain sense of the text makes sense, that's it. There is no interpretation. Just take it literally. Secondly, if, you know, if it's not obvious what the meaning is and it's not necessarily literal, then the next place you want to look uh, to shed some light on your interpretation is at other scripture. First, look at the immediate context. Check the verses before and the verses after the uh, verse or section of the passage that you're trying to interpret and see if you can tell just from the context what, how to interpret this particular passage. Uh, it said that text without context is pretext, and, and that's really true. You've probably all run into situations where someone has quoted a verse of Scripture completely out of context and applied it inappropriately to a situation. It reminds me in the business world of the use of statistics. It's, it's commonly said in the business world that you can make statistics say anything you want them to say. The other thing is if you can't tell from the immediate context of the passage, then take a look at other scriptures on the same topic or that have similar characteristics or similar symbols in them. Uh, that we will use that technique a lot in this class, and it is amazing what she, how consistent Scripture is from beginning to end in its use of symbols. The third thing, the third kind of rule of interpretation, is to you know be cognizant of the writing conventions of the time uh, that that it, that the passage was written. Remember, this is historical writing we're looking at. So one convention is, that was used, a writing technique that was used by writers in this time period, is called the convention of recurrence. And what that means is that very frequently biblical writers would give a general account of an event and then go back and repeat their story or the event in more detail. That does not mean the event happened twice. It just basically means they gave you a summary then they give you the detail. A, real, a great example of this is in Genesis. The first chapter of Genesis gives an overview of creation, while the second chapter of Genesis repeats the, uh, the story of creation and gives you some different perspective, a little different detail. Another uh, writing convention or characteristic that you need to keep in mind as you read the, these uh, scriptures is the, the nuances of the language it was written in. For example, the Old Testament is written mostly in Hebrew with smatterings of other languages such as Aramaic. And the, the Hebrew that it's written in, the biblical Hebrew, uses no vowels. There are only consonants in the words. And this is helpful. This can be helpful in understanding some of the scriptures that you're looking at. For example, the name God is translated in as Yahweh or Jehovah very often in our translations. But in Hebrew, it's actually spelled Y-H-W-H. Uh, it's kind of Yahweh without any vowels. And, and that is an intentionally unpronounceable series of letters because the Jews wanted the name of God to be kept sacred and basically made it un impossible to take the name of the Lord in vain. Also, 
uh, it helps to know that nouns in the Bible are either masculine or feminine in, in Hebrew. And it is no accident that God is referred to in the masculine. The New Testament, on the other hand, is written mostly in Greek. So when we study Daniel, it'll be mostly written in Hebrew. Uh, it has a large path section that's written in Aramaic. When we get to Revelation, Revelation was originally written in Greek. And Greek, when you look at that, it has more verb flexibility than English does. And that can sometimes provide a richness and a perspective on the writer's intent that's lost in the literal English translation. For example, in English, we only have what we call an active or a passive voice. That's either I baptize, that's the active voice, or I am being baptized, that's the passive voice. But Greek has a middle voice in which the subject does the action out of personal interest or advantage. For example, it, if you were using that middle voice in Greek for, the, for baptize, it would be I baptize for myself. Um, it, it can really change how you understand a passage in the Bible. And lastly, we need to set some ground rules for the use of symbols or symbolic language, how we will interpret that. So it's, it's really almost a subset of what we've just talked about. For one thing, symbols are often explained immediately before or after the text where they're used. So we're going to look there first. Secondly, uh, symbols that are not explained in the immediate text are often explained elsewhere in Scripture. So we'll look there next uh, for, for where that, how that symbol might have been defined elsewhere in Scripture. And lastly, we will use the golden rule of interpretation to determine whether a text is symbolic or literal. You know, does it make perfect sense just as it is? Take it literally. If it, if it really doesn't or seems to be within the context of a symbolic passage, then we're going to look, dig a little bit, dig a little bit deeper. Why study prophecy? Is it worth it? You know, why, why are we spending our time doing this? Why are we getting up early in the morning to come out and uh, meet with each other? Well, I, I think that, uh, some of the greatest Reasons are given by the apostles in the New Testament. Take a look at Second Peter 1, 16 through 20. Peter says, For we have not been telling you fairy tales when we explain to you the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. My own eyes have seen his splendor and his glory. I was there on the holy mountain when he shone out with honor given him by God his Father, I heard that glorious, majestic voice calling down from heaven, saying, This is my much-loved Son. I am well pleased with Him. So we have seen and proved that what the prophet said come true. You will do well to pay close attention to everything they have written. For like lights shining in dark corners, their words help us to understand many things that otherwise would be dark and difficult. But when you consider the wonderful truth of the prophet's words, then the light will dawn in your souls, and Christ, the morning star, will shine in your hearts. For no prophecy recorded in Scripture was ever thought up by the prophet himself. It was the Holy Spirit within these godly men who gave them true messages from God. Oh, what an amazing recommendation, huh? There's another one in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. What a foundation you stand on now, the apostles and the prophets. 
and the cornerstone of the building is Jesus Christ himself. Are we standing on half a foundation? Do we focus our study on the Gospels, that is the Apostles, and the New Testament letters and neglect the Prophets? Here it says our foundation is the Apostles and the Prophets, and the cornerstone of the building is Jesus Christ himself. And lastly, Jesus himself put placed great importance on studying the scripture in general and the prophets in particular. In Matthew 24, verse 4, 5, and 11, Jesus said, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So in verse 15 of that same passage, Jesus then goes on to tell them to watch for the predictions of Daniel to occur. So how can we obey our Lord and watch for the fulfillment of these prophecies if we don't even know what they are or we don't understand them? So, I mean, this is, we can feel very confident that this is where Jesus would lead us in our study. If we have not already studied the prophets, we need to be there. So what is prophecy? How would we define prophecy? What are, what are some of the characteristics of prophecy? Well, think about it. Clear, the first thing that comes to mind is that it purports to tell the future. That, well, that's true. But is that enough? If I say, tomorrow morning the sun will come up, is that prophecy? Maybe not. If I say, tomorrow morning the sun will not come up, is that prophecy? Could be, could be. The differentiation is that in my foretelling of the future, what I am telling is beyond the power of normal human wisdom to predict with accuracy. So that's, that's, the, that's the criteria we will use. Now, however, let's, let's take a look at some, you know, something that purports to be modern day prophecy. This is a newspaper rag. It's got a great big headline about the last days and riots and disasters and bird flus coming. And, you know, you see these every year around the first of the year when you're checking out your groceries. So if I hold up this newspaper rag for you and I hold up a Bible for you, how do we tell the difference between these two types of prophecy? Are they prophecy? Yes, by the criteria, they both purport to tell the future and, and both beyond the power of normal human wisdom to, and to predict with, with accuracy. What, what's the difference between them? Well, one is inspired by God and the other is inspired by men or worse. And the other is that the prophecies in the word of God are always true. They always come true. The prophecies in this newspaper rag may or may not be true. They may or may not happen. You certainly cannot depend on them. But when you look at them, when you look at the content, they can be wild and fanciful. Both of them, the, the, the images in these prophecies can be very bizarre. You, you can find you know, aliens and monsters in the newspaper rag, and you can find dragons and, you know, winged lions and, and four-headed creatures in the Bible. So part of what we're trying to accomplish here in this study is 
becoming grounded enough that we can tell the difference between what's false prophecy and what's true. Well, let's start with who writes them. In in the case of the newspaper rag, it's men. Men are writing this down. Uh, And in the case of the Bible, the, the prophets are also men. But they have some particular characteristics that help us recognize them as prophets of God. The role of the prophet um, depends on whether they're a prophet of God or a prophet of from the world. And in fact, in Daniel, in chapter 2, the very beginning of chapter 2, has a terrific list of prophet alternatives that are used by the world. Let's look at uh, verse 2 in, in the second chapter of Daniel. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So later in the chapter, these men as a group are called the wise men of Babylon, and and they're employees of the king of Babylon. God's prophets have fit into his design of the church as a whole. So if we look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 through 31, we can can see how prophets fit into God's design. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And the church, clearly the church is a, um, a institution of Christianity. It, it, you know, Jesus started the church. He said, on, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Um, so tr- the, the definition of a church ha- in, in God's plan is, is very unique and finite. And we're going to look at that a little later. But there ha- so there are clearly prophets in the church and in the church age. And there are prophets that we see in the, in the Old Testament that we're going to be studying. God's prophets throughout history had a particular role with his, within his, with his people. The prophets are attuned to both God's heart and God's will, as well as to the heart of the people that they represent. They see, in fact, and often in very graphic detail and in visions, the great disparity between God's heart and the people's heart. The prophets historically have a great love for the people of God, just as God does. And they struggle with this frustration of dealing with a stiff-necked and perverse people, as they're often called, who are just pushing away God's blessing with both hands. So the prophet often finds himself in an attitude of intercession, begging God for mercy on behalf of the people. And in scripture, there's a very... There's a sense of a very active dialogue between the prophet and God on behalf of the people. Uh, For example, look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 11 through 14. 
and we're, this is looking at Moses. So Moses is, is, is on his face before God. He's, and Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And then the next verse is, is wonderful. Because of Moses interceding, pleading with God to turn away his wrath, Verse 14 says, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do his people. That does not always happen. Let's look at another prophet. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 14 verse 7. This is Jeremiah. Same position on his face before the Lord pleading for the people. Although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Truly our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? Yet you are in our midst, O Lord, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. And then... The Lord answered Jeremiah, and this is what he says. Thus says the Lord to his people, Even so, they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. So prophets, very understandably, could feel the thinness of the ice that the people were walking on. Especially since they were not exempt from these punishments. They suffered for the collective poor choices of their people. Jesus Christ himself provides the most poignant example of a prophet with God's own heart who suffered for our choices. We don't often think of him as a prophet, but he clearly functioned in this capacity and even called himself a prophet. Look at Matthew 13, verse 54. He came to his hometown, this is Jesus coming home, and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And Jesus continues to intercede for us today at the throne of God. In Romans 8, 33, says, God is the one who justifies. 
So who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? It is this closeness to the heart of God that makes the prophet's mind and heart fertile and receptive to the vision of God's plan. They stand very close to God. God sees his plan it's in its entirety. You know, we are very time bound. We tend to look at things in very finite segments of time, a day, a year, a week, a month, even a generation. But God sees his plan for mankind as a wholeness in its entirety. So what's wonderful then is when God communicates this, his plan to a prophet, even though the prophet and his people are in a particular time frame, a particular generation, very often God articulates his plan for mankind in its entirety. And we have record of that throughout the scripture. And this rich mine of prophecy in scripture, we can examine and compare passage to passage to make sure that we understand God's plan for us from the very beginning all the way through to the final outcome. That is one of the big ways that we can tell the difference between this newspaper rag and the Bible. The prophecies in the two of them can be held up to a plumb line that is God's overall plan for mankind that he has communicated over and over. God very consistently tells us his plan, tells us the blessings attending it, warns us of the consequences of straying from it, and he warns us when we're beginning to stray. Over and over, he takes us back and puts us back on the path when we stray from it. And understanding what this pattern is will lay the groundwork for our study of prophecy in Daniel and Revelation. So let's look at the first recording of God's plan for us. And as you would expect, it's at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, you, hear, you see Adam and Eve, and, and uh, they're in the Garden of Eden. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And then in verse 21 of the same chapter, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So if we kind of look at these very closely, we see that God's, the way God set this up to work in the beginning was man was to be blessed. We were to fill the earth with children. We were to rule over every living thing. He set it up for us to converse with him face to face every day. We weren't, and we weren't going to even have to worry about the difference between good or evil. We were just supposed to exist happily in God's presence. And God was very explicit. Even without needing an intermediary prophet, 
he was able to lay his plan out very clearly for Adam and Eve. Now, at this point, you want to note, there is no Jew and there is no Gentile. There is just man. As you all know the story, things went downhill from there until the time of Noah. Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 5, tells us that every act of man was evil and every thought of man's heart was evil. So God wiped mankind out from the face of the earth and started over with one man and one family. But even still, God's plan did not change. If you flip over a few chapters and look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, I'm going to read, kind of skip around a little between verse 1 and verse 7. But it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So this is very reminiscent of the plan that he gave to Adam and Eve. It just really hasn't, hasn't changed to be fruitful and multiply. You're all of the Every living thing in the world is to be subject to you. You can eat any animal you want. You can eat any plant you want. The only thing that he added was, you know, by the way, guys, don't kill each other because you were made in God's image. It's, it's like it's a shame he ever even had to say that. It, it never even entered into his discussion with Adam and Eve because at that time um, that we weren't supposed to have to deal with evil. But clearly after the fall, evil certainly had a big role in in the world. And so at the time of Noah, God added this one restriction. He said, look, don't don't kill each other. Well, man got the multiplying part right. He certainly multiplied, but so did murder. And uh, man did not respect life and did not live in fellowship with God. And so ultimately God decided to start over again. This time, as he had promised, he did not wipe out mankind um, with a flood, certainly. Uh, In fact, he left all of mankind in place. This time, however, he decided to choose one family, call that one family out from the world and set them apart to belong to him, to worship him. It's like... Through the faithfulness of that one family, the rest of us could be saved. God pulled out Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, that was Abraham's name originally, Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make you a, make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's plan is still very simple. 
His whole object is just to bless us, to bless all of the families of the earth. And again, there's, although there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in those terms, you do begin to see this is the very beginning of the emergence of a chosen people. They're not a nation yet, but God says they will become a nation. And what was the point there at the very last verse? What was the point of having a chosen people? To have a people through whom the rest of the nations could be blessed. So then God goes on to specify what was required of the chosen people in order to, to gain for the world this huge blessing. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. So really all that was required of us was to walk with God. The meaning of the Hebrew word uh, tamin, which is translated here as blameless, is, according to Strong's Dictionary, entire. It literally, figuratively, or morally complete. At, um, it also means integrity, truth, without blemish, complete, full, perfect, uh, sincerely Sincerely sound, without spot, and defiled, upright, whole. Being, if you you know meditate on that, what you what you begin to understand is that being blameless was a natural consequence of walking with God and living in His presence. It is the natural consequence of staying aware of Him. God was not asking us to artificially be blameless. What he was saying is walk with me and be made whole, be made complete. That is the connotation and understanding you should get from this word blameless. Walk with me and be made whole. So that wholeness, that blamelessness was a, a blessing from God, not a, not a restriction, not, you know, you have to measure up at all. God just says, just be with me. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Well, Abraham's family did grow and pass the name of God and his traditions down from generation to generation. But they did not walk with God like he intended. They quarreled and they fought and eventually ended up as a nation of slaves in Egypt, where they suffered cruel hardships at the hands of the Egyptians. They were so miserable that God decided to try again. To get the chosen people to turn to him and try his plan for their lives. In Exodus chapter 19 verse 3. Where Moses is, is here and he's um, gone to God. And uh, this is after the Red Sea. They've you know been saved out of Egypt miraculously by the clear hand of God. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. And tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here we have... The, the distinction 
between the Jewish nation and the Gentile nations. The Jewish nation is being called to be set apart, to be a possession of God's, out from among all the peoples. Um, but God says clearly, all the earth is mine. He's, he's not disowning the Gentiles. He's providing for their salvation through the, this, this nation of Jews and who is called to be a nation and a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So we begin to see a, a differentiation of, of roles and the special place, the special relationship that God is beginning to establish with the Jews. In fact, this is such a special relationship that God consistently refers to it after this as a marriage relationship in, in terms of marriage. When the Israelites begin to fall away, uh, and worship other idols when they, they fall away from God, God calls their action adultery. And it's ironic that somehow in Egypt, Israel, the very people who were called to be priests, lost their willingness to walk closely with God and talk to him face to face. It's, it's during this time um, that they were being called out of Egypt that they insisted on having a prophet to speak for them and to stand on their behalf in front of God, to intercede for them before God, to tell them what God was saying. It's, it's, it's just sad that right at that very moment when God has just demonstrated his huge love for them, that's when they begin to push him away. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 19. Then they said to Moses, these are the Israelites, saying, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Moses said, Yeah, I know he's scary. I know there's mountain, there's thunder and fire, and, you know, he's very scary. But he's just trying to protect you. Uh, you know, it reminds me of when you've got a three-year-old approaching a hot fire. You holler at them. You scare them to stop them dead in their tracks so they do not get burned. And that's Moses saying, that's all God's doing here. You know, he, he looks scary, yes, but he's doing it so that you never fall away and fall into sin. But even at that God's message, his plan, has not changed. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, uh, is kind of a summation of God's promise to the Israelites that, that, he, that he articulated through Moses. He said, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today 
shall be on your heart. This message, you know, is, was given to the Jews at that time, but it is the same message that God gave to mankind from the beginning. He just walk with God. Love Him with your whole heart. Live in His presence and it will be well with you. You will multiply greatly. Your land will be flowing with milk and honey. This, this particular passage was selected by Jesus as the most important part of the law. And even today, you see, uh, it's called the Shema, and uh, Jews today, if you go in their ha- homes, on the doorposts of their homes, you'll see a little, uh, a little scroll, usually in a little case. It looks almost like a thermometer. Um, but this little scroll, that's, this is what's on that scroll, is this word, because it, the, it later goes on to say you should, should write it on your do- doorposts. So you would think that after all the visible miracles that Israel saw in the days of Moses and Joshua and throughout all this time period, that you know they'd have no problem giving up idols. They know they worship the living, all-powerful God. But they did not give up idols. Israel repeatedly turned away from God and worshipped idols. This is one of the great paradoxes and great truths, really, of faith, and that is the more visible the miracles are and the more visible God makes himself, for some reason it has it the the less faith we have. It it's very strange. But and to God this this running after other gods, um, be they idols of stone or or idols of money or idols of um the kind of idols we have today of sex and status, and you know, it hasn't changed much in the world. To God, this was adultery, a horrible, painful violation of Israel's intended relationship to him. You know, if you want to, to read a, a very graphic description of how intensely God felt this adultery, then go and read the uh, book of Hosea. It's a little short book. This prophet is one of the prophets. Uh, read the book of Hosea and you will see how God sees this, this running away from him. Throughout all of this, God was incredibly patient. He warned Israel over and over. He sent them prophets. He warned them of the consequences of their adultery. And one of the messengers, one of the prophets that, that was sent to Israel was Isaiah. And this was his message. Isaiah 1, verse 4. O sinful nation. You are a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. You have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned your backs on him. Why should you prolong your suffering? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the soles of your feet to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only open wounds and welts and sores, not even cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. And he goes on to say in in chapter 3, verse 8, Your words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on your face testifies against you. You parade your sin like Sodom. You do not even hide it. So because of their apostasy, apostasy is another word for turning away from God after you've already known him. Because of their apostasy, the Jews were given over to the Gentiles. 
they were exiled and dispersed and made to suffer horribly at the hands of the barbaric Gentile nations. This is the time period that we enter in when we go to the book of Daniel. The, the book of Daniel occurs at the very beginning of this age of the Gentiles when the Israelite nation has been given over essentially to punishment, to being trampled on, to being really cleansed by fire, as it were, um, by suffering at the hands of the Gentiles. But before things got that far, God sent prophet after prophet to warn the Jews of the consequences of their actions and to plead with them to return to him. Uh, There were just tons of passages in uh, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and all these prophets that predicted the both the exile and what would happen at the end of the period of the exile. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 13. My people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their important men will die of hunger and the masses will be parched with thirst. The grave will enlarge its appetite and will open its mouth without limit. So man will be brought low and mankind will be humbled. And that prophecy was fulfilled during Isaiah's lifetime. But all of this punishment, this this hurt, that is just a, a a scrubbing away of the sin. It's it's a plea from God to turn back to Him. Isaiah forty six three. Listen to me, all you who remain, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. This is this is God talking, even into your old age and gray hairs. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. Isaiah 49:15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget you, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 44, verse 21. Remember these things, for you are my servant. I have made you and I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The exile of the Jews during the time of Daniel scattered the Jews, and they have returned to to the promised land, to Jerusalem, from time to time throughout the years. But their return has never been complete. Not, you know, all the Jews have not come back, and they have not been entirely under their own rule all of these times. You know, just it's never been permanent, and it's never been whole. So we know that there are still prophecies remaining to be fulfilled that predict over and over that God is going to gather all of the Jews from where they are in all four corners of the earth. And bring them back. In fact, um, Jesus himself tells us this will happen in the last days. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus is speaking. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The prophets make it very clear 
that the Jews are not going to be dis- disinherited and they are not disinherited now while they're under the, you know, dominion of the Gentiles. They, in the end, will share with the Gentiles in the promised blessings of God, but only after they recognize the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a passage, you know, I, we just read a passage from Matthew in the New Testament. There's passages throughout the Old Testament. If you look at Ezekiel 11, verse 16, therefore says, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, that's the Gentiles, and I will assemble you, Israelites, out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. So you can see God's plan for his people has never changed. He has consistently made it possible for us to be in his presence and be blessed by him. And we should keep this in mind as we read through these violent you know, events and the apocalyptic last days that we're going to study because we need to understand that God's plan for us is not to end in violence and, and mayhem. Um, the the plan of God as it's written throughout the prophets, we we didn't cover any of the scriptures today, but, but there are throughout, you know, the Jews believe in a Messiah because throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah was predicted, the one who would come to to save them and to bring them back to God. Uh, and and we do know that that Messiah has come, and it is Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and that he made the final provision, the permanent provision, the provision that cannot be overcome, to bring us into God's presence, to make it possible for us to become whole. As sinful and, and corrupt as we are, Jesus made it possible for us. And and that wonderful verse in the Bible that talks about there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. This is a, a blessing we cannot throw away. It It is there for us. So stay grounded as we study in your assurance of God's consistent and loving plan. Um, studying the Bible prophecy as we're doing now will educate you so that you will know how to recognize the signs of the times. You'll be able to recognize where we are, what step are we in in God's plan as we approach the end days. And by the end of our study and with the indwelling guidance of the Holy Spirit, you should be well equipped to know the difference between God's words and the words of the false prophets.